0: Scene 2012 on cradio.org.au Being a true disciple with Father Dave Callahan. Father Dave is a priest with the Missionaries of God's Love. He was ordained in 2008 and is now working to train the NGO novices and pre-novices in Canberra. This talk was recorded in a collaboration between cradio.org.au and xt3.com
1: I I don't know whether you've read the blurb, I assume you did, about the talk. Um, Basically... (laughs) 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 The whole question, how do we be a true disciple? What is it to be a Christian? Now, this is a question that fascinates me because I kind of come from the perspective that I think to a large degree, we don't know what it is to be a Christian. Even if you've been on the journey for quite some time, the reality is that we live within a context, okay? And most of what you know as a human being hasn't been taught to you. Think of most of what you know. You pick it up from your surroundings. You absorb it from your culture you know from the way other people behave, the way your family operates, different customs that you have. That, that's where you learn probably 90 percent of what you know. Um, the same goes with our faith. Most of what you know about what it is to be Catholic you've learned from watching other people. you know you probably can't remember someone teaching you how to genuflect or do the sign of the cross. You thought, oh they're doing it. They do the same thing, okay? Um, And so even even without being conscious of it, we're constantly learning off other people, you know, and, and understanding what the faith is from our surroundings. Now, I don't know much about what your surroundings are, you know, whether you're part of youth groups, communities, what your parish scene is like. And yet we kind of need to look seriously at this question that even, even, I think, the best parishes and the best communities these days, when you look at how they live, and this is the question that fascinates me, look at how they live and compare it to what we have of the early church. It's actually very different. Yeah. Look at, compare it to the writings of some of the saints, like guys like St. Ignatius Loyola. Very often, welcome. <laughs> Over the last few years, I've I've run a few youth retreats where I've I've tried to break open with young people how the saints thought, you know, break open some of the writings of the saints, and I'm fascinated that even even young Catholics who are studying theology, who are fervent in the faith, you break open some of the stuff by Ignatius Leola and they're like, no, not going there. You know, that's, that's asking too much. You know, you read some of the stuff from the early, the, the early martyrs. I'll read you some stuff later on. The, the, the stuff that some of these early church fathers wrote about how they saw Christianity, and it's almost like a different religion. You know, it's just so far out there compared to what we live. And I think this is a challenge we need to take up to really, really go back and look not just at our friends, not just at our parish, but at the communion of the saints. To look at the whole history of the church, how have people encountered Christ, how have they responded to him. And I can tell you if you do that, it'll kind of scare you. In fact, it will scare you a lot. (laughs) It'll challenge you as to, do you actually know Christ? So this is what I want to try and cover in 45 minutes. (laughs) The last time I did this, I spent a whole weekend with a bunch of young people. So this is going to be like a really accelerated, just try and break open the questions. I don't expect to try and cover anything in depth here. But really what I want to do is make you hungry. I want to make you question and think, is there more? Is there more than what I'm experiencing? Starting point. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I don't know if you've got a Bible. If you no, one has got a Bible. It's okay. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is Timothy writing to, I say so this is Paul writing to Timothy. From my personal perspective, the saddest line in all the letters of St. Paul. This is Paul in prison. We don't know how long he's been in prison for. You get the impression it's probably winter because he's asking for them to bring warm clothing next time they visit him. He's been working tirelessly in, in mission and he's now sitting behind bars. And he writes to Timothy about his companions. And just this one line, he writes about one of the guys who's been with him in mission, this guy, Danis. And he simply says, Make haste and come quickly to me, Damas has fallen in love with this present world. He has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Then he lists off all these other people, other followers. They've gone there, they've gone there, these people have left me. That line always strikes me. Damas has fallen in love with this present world and left me. That should be a very sobering line for all of us. All of us are trying to follow Jesus, all of us are disciples. So was Damas. Now, Damas was travelling with the greatest evangelist the world has ever known. He wasn't just hearing your local parish priest preaching on a Sunday. He was hearing St. Paul. You know, the greatest preaching around at the time. He was hearing the gospel being proclaimed with power. He was seeing miracles. He could very well have been preaching himself. He could very well have been... Pre- performing miracles himself. And yet here at a particular point he falls in love with the world and abandons it all. Walks away from Christ. Now if a follower of St. Paul can do that where do we stand? Every time I read that it just cuts me to the core and I think where am I with Christ? Where am I with my conversion? And I think this is our starting point. That if we're talking about being a disciple, if we're talking about the, the whole place of conversion, we need to understand that we're very much on a process. It's a process that begins with believing. I believe in Jesus Christ, but it doesn't end there. Sadly, so many Christians think that's the start and the finish. I believe in Jesus. That's enough. It starts with believing, but it ends with becoming. It ends with becoming Christ. And this is the point we need to be really clear on. This is what Christianity is. Yes, believing in Jesus Christ is essential. You can't begin the journey without that. There's a line in in the letter of James where James is talking about faith. And he says, you believe that God is one. That's fantastic. But you need to realize that the demons also believe that and they tremble. Okay? he's trying to wake us up to the fact that that's, that's good but it's not enough believing has to lead us into the beginning of a journey and it's a journey of becoming becoming God okay now that probably sounds slightly heretical to you Luke I told you I'd throw it into your houses but sadly it's not in the Catechism paragraph 260 have a read of that sometime when you go home The whole work of the Trinity in the world is that you would enter into the unity of the Trinity. I could go into a whole explanation of the Trinity here for you, but we probably haven't got time. But the whole thing is, you are not just a spectator. The whole thing of being a Christian is that it's not just about, you know, getting your name in the book of life and you get to heaven and you get a nice seat at the back of the grandstands and you get to watch what goes on for the rest of eternity. You're not a spectator. The whole point of this is that you enter into a relationship with Christ. And it's a relationship of profound intimacy. The whole imagery used through the scriptures is that of a marriage. The readings we've had this week from Hosea. I will lure her into the wilderness and there I will speak tenderly to her. And I'll betroth her in tenderness. I'll betroth her in love. And she will call me my husband. This is God speaking about his people Israel about us that we would enter into a relationship not just of a friend not of duty not of being a servant but of absolute profound intimacy when Jesus steps on the scene in the Gospels we have John the Baptist who points to Jesus and says there's the bridegroom John chapter three basically what he's saying is everything you've heard in the Old Testament about God wanting to enter into this marriage covenant with his people, this is the guy. This is the bridegroom. This is the one who has come to reveal his love, to wed himself to you. Now think of a marriage. What happens in a marriage? Two become one. You know, a relationship so profound, so intimate, that you can no longer really differentiate the two. You know, I know some really holy married couples and you meet them and you think, I don't know where one person starts and the other one finishes. Yeah, physically, yes. But spiritually, they've become so united that, you know, you, you, you can't imagine one without the other. This is what it is to be a Christian. You become so united with Christ that you become him. This is why we call the church the body of Christ. It's not just a nice phrase. What we're trying to say here is that you are him. Because he is in you. The journey of discipleship is the journey of becoming. Becoming him in the world. Okay. St. Therese of Lisieux used the image. She said, "My, my vocation is love. My whole purpose is to become love. Not just to be loving, not just to be nice, not just to do good works, but to become love. And when she said that, she was very clear of what John was saying in in 1 John chapter 4. God is love. To become love is to become God. Yet this is the heart of the Catholic faith. In the Catholic tradition, we talk about holiness, sanctification. In the Orthodox tradition, they talk about divinization. They're much more bold than we are. You read some of the early church fathers from the Eastern tradition, guys like, say, Gregory Nesianzus, Gregory of Nyssa. They're very clear. They say, the whole thing is that you have been made divine. The old saying that was said by numerous saints, Augustine, all these guys, God became man so that man could become God. Understand that this is your vocation. This is why you were baptised. Christianity is not like every other religion. It's not just a matter of follow a good moral code, be a good person, hope that you get through the gates. It's about becoming Christ. One of the things I often try and explain to people, there's only one person that gets into heaven, that's Jesus. To the degree that you are Jesus, you get in. (laughs) And you are because you were baptised. When you are baptized, you are anointed priest, prophet, and king. You are marked with the oil of chrism. You are anointed with the very life of Christ, the very spirit of Christ. You, this has already happened. Okay, This is not a matter of you having to try really hard. It's a matter of the fact that it's been done. That's the first thing we've got to get clear. Okay, Understand who you are. But as a Christian you have the most profound vocation in the world. You will enter into the very life of the Trinity, the very unity of the Trinity. You'll be caught up for the rest of eternity in infinite love. If you even begin to try and comprehend what that is, your head will probably explode. (laughs) This is what we are headed for. Okay? How do we get there? We've started the journey. We've started by believing. We've encountered Jesus Christ in all of us to different degrees. It's this most mysterious thing, this whole process of conversion. How do we encounter a God we don't see? You know, We've heard some of that this week with people giving their testimonies in the mornings. You may have even been sharing with people your own story. And as much as we try to put words to it, it defies words. It's the most mysterious thing. what is that moment when someone encounters the risen Lord? And the reality is we go through different stages I, I look at my my journey I, I well I was a brought- up Catholic you know I was always part of youth groups but I would have to say I encountered Christ for the first time when I was eighteen years old I was in first year university studying science and during that year God broke into my life. This God who I had been praying to for years but I encountered him. I can't begin to explain how. <laughs> yeah, but there was something there something, of an, something that the Holy Spirit did where it went from something in my head, it went from being something that I knew to something that I'd encountered. You know, not a feeling, not a sensation, but something so deep. You know, the only way I can try and describe it, you know, when, you know, with a really close friend, or those who are in a relationship, or those who are married, sometimes you get that moment when you just look in the eyes of someone and there's just that, you know them, and they know you. You know, there is something communicated, you can't begin to put words on it. If someone said what was just, said there, you couldn't, you couldn't explain. But you, you know that there is an encounter. That, that's the closest I can get to explaining what this is. Yeah, and I know many of you have experienced that. The whole point is that that encounter is meant to lead us in. It's meant to stir up a hunger in us. That we would keep going. The best way to understand the Christian life, personally, I think, is marriage. As a consecrated man, as a priest, I think I've learned more about prayer by looking at married couples than any other book I've ever read. Because it's the same dynamic. How do you lose yourself in another person? How do you enter into the mystery of that person? You know, I think for all that's ever been written about prayer, to just look at a young married couple look at the conflict that goes on as they're trying to deal with themselves, their own sin, their own pride, and that battle of how do I lose myself? I've lived completely with myself for so long and now I'm called to enter into somebody else and lose myself in them. It's a very tumultuous process. It hurts. (laughs) I've been working with so many married couples this last year whose marriages are just... In absolute chaos. And very much it's because of that process of how do I lose myself in them? You know, Jesus speaks of this. Those who, who follow me have to lose themselves. You know, the one who, who saves his life will lose it. The one who loses his life will save it. You know, we can look at that from so many different perspectives. About <coughs> martyrdom. About you know, sacrifice. But I think even just basically about love. The one who loses themselves finds life, finds joy. This is very much the process of discipleship. It's about falling in love with Christ so much that you don't want anything else. That you are so captured by the fire of his love that you're prepared to walk away from anything. Even the things that are closest to you. Your freedom, your autonomy, your pride, your vanity. These things that we would die for. You know, I'd be prepared to just walk away from all of that as long as I can have Him. The journey begins and ends with His love. It's, it's not about what we do, it's about what we encounter. Once again, 1 John 4. This is what loving God is it's not our love for Him, it's His love for us. He, he makes the first step. His love calls us on. Anything I do is simply a response. Anything I do in the Christian life is simply my desperate attempt to show how grateful I am. You know, I'm not living a vow of poverty, chastity, obedience because I'm trying to earn my way to heaven. Or because I'm trying to prove myself to God. But it's because I've seen that He's given His life for me. What can I give back? All I can give is my life. Every part of it. And so, every day, I'll gaze upon the cross and remind myself, I'm just going to give everything. Yeah? It's because you're captured by love that you will run. Yeah, if you try and live the Christian journey as a set of rules, or as a duty, or as something you're trying to strive for, you're not going to make it. And you've got to be really clear on that. It's sad but true. You will not make it. That could very well be what happened to Danes. You know, if we try and do it as a way of trying to prove ourselves to God, trying to achieve something, doesn't work. The whole of the Christian life is meant to be a response to love, and so the only way you can live the Christian life is if you have encountered that love, if you have placed yourself in that silence, and you have encountered Him once again. That beautiful text from Hosea. God says, I will lure her into the wilderness and there I will speak tenderly to her heart. You need to allow yourself to be lured into the wilderness, into the silence. That's the only place you'll encounter it. The books are good. The lives of the saints are good. You know, listening to all the podcasts are good. But at the end of the day, it has to be silence. It has to be that place where you meet Him. Where you see God seeing you. You know that he knows you. The more that captures your heart, the more you will run. Now, there's obviously a whole process. You know, if if the Christian life is about entering into absolute union, okay, and I, and I really want you to understand it that way. Firstly, this this starts to change the stereotype. You know, I'm sure. If you compare this to what you have absorbed from your world around you, this is probably a very different view of Christianity. I think for most people, it's about duty. It's about trying to be good. Trying to get themselves into heaven. Yeah. That's just kind of the, the subtext of so much of what we do. Even, even when we start to read the lives of the saints, that's the way we interpret it, even if that's not what they lived. Because it becomes the dominant message. But think about it as union. That you have a God who is madly in love with you. A God who wants to be passionately in union with you. So the whole of the Christian life now becomes that process. Okay, It's not about trying to jump through hoops. It's not about trying to perform things. It's about falling in love. Every day. Staying with it. Staying faithful to it. Anyone here married? How many married couples we got? We got one, two, three. Thank you. Hope you don't mind if I use you as examples or ask for your input, <coughs> or, or at least your affirmation. If I'm saying the right thing, am I correct? Marriage is hard work. Okay, seriously hard work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and, and I, I, I I'm guessing here the hardest thing is probably staying present to it. You know, staying present to the reality. You know, where it's so easy to get busy, so easy to become functional. How do you stay present to the love? You know, that's the hardest thing about love. Because as you go along, you get drawn into this mystery. I was talking to this woman in Canberra a couple of years ago. You know, it was, she, she just celebrated her 35th wedding anniversary. And I said to her, look, when you got married, did you understand love? And she said, Oh, we knew everything. We could have written books. You know, we were experts. I said, after thirty five years, do you understand love? And she said, Not at all. Haven't got a clue. (laughs) You know, and and this is the the mystery of what we're doing. You know, love takes you on a journey. And it's a very mysterious journey. You know, and it will take you where you don't necessarily want to go. You know, for those who have been married, I'm sure it has taken you in places you don't want to go. It's taken you into suffering. It's taken you into places where it's asked things of you you don't want to even give. You know, to, to make sacrifices you really would rather not have to do. The Christian life is very much the same. You know, cause the, the, whole, the whole point of that is that love desperately wants to bring us into union that we would lose ourselves, that we would empty everything of myself. And so the only thing I have is the other. And, and, and this is the, the amazing poverty of marriage. <laughs> you know, when you see people who, who are really living the, the vocation of marriage, love, love will strip you of everything, strip you of everything that you are. And so you no longer have yourself, but all you have is the other. And it has stripped them completely so that they don't have themselves and all they have is you. And, and you live in this life of absolute dependence. You know, where, you know, I, I can't kind of put words on what I'm trying to describe, you know. But, but it's, it's that moment of absolute vulnerability, absolute intimacy. And, and that is where union comes. It's the same thing that God is doing with us. If you want to understand how God is working your life, understand that it's the same process. That he wants to be in union with you. He doesn't want you to just be a believer. He doesn't want you to just be a follower. He wants you to enter into absolute union with him. Now this is very strong in the Carmelite tradition in the church. I'm a big fan of the Carmelites. I've got an aunt who's a Carmelite. It's probably the only reason why I'm standing here because she was praying for me all my life. <laughs> <laughs> and if I'm going to succeed in my vocation it's because she's going to keep praying for me so, but the whole Carmelite tradition speaks really strongly of this, St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross two of the massive towering figures of the Catholic Church they don't get spoken about enough their whole understanding of prayer and of discipleship is very much this idea of marriage and of union that God will lead us into a process of, of discipleship, but, it, but it's not just of following. You know, it's, and I, and I don't, I think there comes a point where the word discipleship starts to fail us. Because it really is this process of becoming. Now to give you a really quick understanding of what, what this is. Best way I ever heard the whole journey of prayer described was by a very holy Carmelite here in Sydney. And he basically described it like the journey of a relationship. You know? Young man running for a train at the station, bucking down with rain, jumps on the train. There's this beautiful young woman there who sort of laughs at him because he looks like a drowned rat. Okay. Anyway, they start a conversation. She loads him a, her umbrella, he goes to his office. Next day, gets on the same train, she's there. They're joking about the weather. Basic chit chat, okay? And they start to catch the same train, they become good friends, you know, talking about work, talking about what happened on the weekend. Really surface stuff, you know, superficial, functional things. But gradually the relationship deepens. And they start to get drawn into the mystery of the other person. You know, so they gradually start going out, you know, then the relationship really starts to develop. And they're no longer talking about the weather. Yeah, it's the last thing they want to talk about, really. <laughs> because they're fascinated by each other. They they want to encounter the mystery of the other. I want to know your history, I want to know your family, I want to understand all the experiences that have shaped you into who you are. Eventually they get married. And and in walking that journey, that sort of meditation on each other goes deeper. You know, it's not so much asking questions, but it's sort of just watching. You know, sort of watching the way they behave. Why do you pick up your cup that way? Why do you walk that way? Or whatever it is. It's kind of that that deep fascination of the other person. They go through struggles, sicknesses with the children, you know, grief, loss, all the suffering. But all that brings them closer. At every moment, they're, they're faced with that decision of, do I love or do I pull back? You know, do I go deeper? Anyway, jump forward fifty years, and there they are sitting in a nursing home in chairs opposite each other, just looking at each other. Not saying a word. Yeah, they don't need to speak because they already know what the other is thinking. And all they do is just gaze upon the other in love. Yeah, it's a beautiful image. Yeah, I think anyone discerning marriage would probably think, I want that. <laughs> But to try and explain the journey of prayer, that's basically it. The journey of discipleship. Because very much when we encounter God, it's often by accident. And we start off very much with the basic chit-chat. You know, God, how was your day? Did you get up to anything? (laughs) You know, know, and very much it's that vocal prayer. You know, devotions, you know, saying prayers, you know. Just chatting with God. And and you need to begin that way. You know, if, if you met someone on the train and you immediately started saying, I don't understand your whole background and your identity. <laughs> they would call the police. Yeah. You, you need to start that way with God. You know, you need to start with that chit-chat. Take
0: out
1: <laughs> yeah, you don't want God to take me out of <laughs> <maybe>. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but it, it can't stay there you know they, they probably had that point where they thought are we just going to catch this train for the next 50 years and talk about the weather you know it, the, the relationship would never have gone anywhere and there are relationships in your life where, where you do that you know? there are people that I catch up with and we almost say the same thing to each other every day you know <clears throat> but there's that point where you need to choose for intimacy and, and you choose to become fascinated by the other. And so this is where the saints talk about how we move into a stage of meditation in prayer. Where you, where you, you want to stop talking. You want to stop using you know, devotional prayers. I mean, things like the rosary are fantastic. Divine mercy. Always do it. You know, but to actually just stop and encounter Christ. You know, this is where we get drawn into meditation of the scriptures. You know, to, to read a story of the scriptures and be fascinated by who is this guy? Why does he do this? You know, if, if Jesus is the face of God revealed to us, you know, he is the word made flesh. When we gaze upon his humanity, we encounter the divinity. And so when you read the stories of, of Christ in the, in the Gospels, look deeply at him. Look at him as a person. Look at his emotion. Read the Gospel of Mark. It's an extremely emotion-filled Gospel. It's amazing how emotional Christ is. You know, look at Him and say, well, who are you? <coughs> what is this <coughs> revealing about God? What is this revealing about the depths of who you are? You know, that's meditation. Fall in love with Him. As you go through that process for years, as that love deepens... And as you go through trials in your life, you'll go through struggles in your faith, sufferings, and at the same time, you'll be faced with that decision, do I pull back? Do I say, sorry Jesus, I can do this by myself. It's too hard to do it with you. Or do you make that decision and say, no, let's go deeper. If it means losing more of myself and gaining more of you, then it's worth it. Gradually you move into that place of contemplation. Just like the old couple gazing at each other. To come to a place where you just gaze upon Christ and you encounter Him. And it's really in that place that you start to become Him. Because it's very much through those trials, through the sufferings, that we become purified. The same way in a marriage. You know, once again, a lot of these couples that I know that I'm working with at the moment. They're going through massive purification. You, you hit up against some conflict in a relationship. And, and what is the source of the conflict? It's not the fact that they don't put the, tube, the, the, the lid on the toothpaste. It's the fact that it, it's, it's asking too much. It's asking you to make too much of a sacrifice of love. Or it's, it's your pride or your vanity hitting up against theirs. And there's this constant call of purification. How do I get rid of this? How do I allow Christ to purify that so that it actually gets stripped away from me? It's a very painful process. John of the Cross, when he talks about the whole process of purification in our life, he effectively says, this is what purgatory is. You know, when we talk about going to purgatory before you get to heaven, so you're going to be purified before you stand before the glory of Christ, it begins now. And the degree to which we allow it to begin now. If, if God is perfect love, then everything in me that is not love needs to be burnt away. You know, this is the process of becoming. You know, and it, it is through the trials. It's through the sacrifices. It's, it's when you've had a shocking day. You've just done like a 12 or 14 hour day. You come home. All you want to do is just sit down and chill out. And someone comes up to you and just starts talking about their problems. What do you do? Do you shut down the say, Sorry, my time. <laughs> or do you stretch yourself in love? Do you see this as a moment of holiness? Of a moment where you become love? You know, and, and this is, this is the, the real guts of holiness. Okay, It's, it's a horrible, painful process. You know, it, it's all those little moments of your day where you have to make a decision for love. Where I have to decide and say, I can go down the path of selfishness here, or I can just almost rip my heart apart here and have to love more than I think I can. You know, stretch my capacity. You know, but basically, it's a great image, I think, of, of what we're actually doing here. You know, think, think of your heart. Okay, your heart's probably about that big. Well, they say it's about the size of your fist. Okay? How, how, you know, how big is your soul? Soul probably doesn't even have shape or form or size. <laughs> but you've been created to contain God. Okay? You've been created to be able to hold an infinite love. When I look at myself, I think, I can't hold that. Okay? Infinite is huge, I'm that big. Okay. But it's very much this process of how do I allow myself to be stretched? God's whole desire is to enter into union with me so that I would hold him so that he can enter in. I don't have the capacity to hold him. I don't have the capacity to hold that sort of love because my heart is so selfish. It is so small. But I need to cooperate with the grace of God. I need to make a decision every day to allow him to stretch me. And it is in those moments when someone comes up to you who you just don't wanna talk to and you have to like, okay, let's just stretch ourselves more, okay. Let's make a decision for love. It's it's when you see someone in need and you can quite happily be busy and go the other direction, but you say, no, let's stretch ourselves in love. It's when you just don't wanna pray, you're angry with God, whatever it is, but you say, no, let's stretch ourselves in love. here. Gradually, it's, it's almost like getting a, a sack. I think it's actually St. Augustine who uses the image. He says, you know, if you have a big sack and you're trying to put something in it which is bigger than the sack, you've got to stretch the sack. You know, you've got, it's a hard process to stretch its capacity so that it can contain an object bigger than itself. The journey of the Christian life is very much that. How do I, every day, make that decision and say yes? You don't really have to go looking for opportunities they will come to you. You don't have to go looking for the cross. It will find you. (laughs) It will hunt you down. (laughs) The question is, what do you do when it comes? How do you respond? Do you say yes? One of the things you need to be really clear about, holiness is extremely easy. To become a saint, all you have to do is know how to say yes. And have the courage to say it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sounds easy. (laughs) But really, that's all it is. You know, it's not about having heroic strength. You know, it's not about being genetically different to everyone else. You know, some people think that you come out of the womb with a halo around you already. It's about simply making that yes. And having a fair degree of stubbornness to stick with it. John Paul II used to speak about the, the idea of holy stubbornness, and I'm a big fan of it. It should be, personally, I think it should be added to the list of virtues, the virtue of holy <laughs> stubbornness. To be able to say, I want God, and I'm going I'm to go for God no matter what comes. All I want is that. You know, I want Him more than life itself. Now, now that, well, once again, that comes from what you've encountered. And what you encounter comes from what you want to encounter. You know, I kind of end up going around in circles here. So it's about making that de- decision, I want to know this. I want to know this so badly that I'm not going to let God sleep until he reveals himself. And then when he does, it just stirs up that hunger even more. And you're just like, I want to know more. You know, I'm going to go after you again and again until you reveal yourself to me. It's a, it's a hunger that leads us on. People so often think about holiness and think, I'm not strong enough. You know, I don't have the strength to go the journey. It's not about strength. It's about hunger. Yeah, and it's about directing that hunger. All of us are hungry. And, and all of us are directing that hunger in the wrong direction most of the time. I'm directing it towards false gods, false loves. False promises. To really become a saint, you need to know your hunger. Know the hunger for love that's within you. And and direct it. You know, turn it to God and say, I just want that. You know, and I'm prepared to do anything. Saint Paul is really good on this. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Saint Paul. Um In 1 Corinthians 9 he uses this image. Basically about how how he sees his Christian journey. You know, he's not going along passively. He's not just letting it happen. He's not just drifting and hoping for the best. He's got his eyes firmly set upon the goal. And he's saying, whatever it takes, I'm going there. So This is what he says. All that I do, I do for the sake of the gospel promises. To win myself a share in them. You know well enough that when men run in a race, the race is for all. But the prize is for one. Run then for victory. Every athlete must keep all his appetites under control. And he does it to win a crown crown that fades. Whereas ours is imperishable. So So I do not run my course like a man in doubt of his goal. I do not fight my battle like a man who wastes his blows on the air. I buffet my own body and make it my slave. Or I, who have preached to others, may myself be rejected as worthless. You know, he's clear about where he's going. He knows what he wants. You know, if you want to survive as a Christian, you've got to know what you want. You've got to know where you're going. And, and know what you're prepared to give for that. Now, I mean, for, for myself, this is very much coming out of my background, you know. I don't know how other people approach this. Um, it's hard for me to understand how other people think. I, I came from a very strong sporting background, you know. I was a, a road cyclist, um, don't know if you've been watching in the Tour de France. Um, you know, cyclists are uh, well, not slightly masochistic, they're very masochistic. Um, you know It's often said that in cycling, the person who wins isn't the person who's strongest, it's normally the person who's prepared to suffer the most. Um, that was my background, you know. And, and I, I knew the goal. I knew what I wanted and I knew what it was going to take. And so my training wasn't just riding a bike. There was a whole internal discipline, a whole internal battle of how much do I actually want this? You know, Do I want this so badly that, it, that no matter what happens, I'm never going to stop? Um, now, I'm very happy to admit I was absolutely stupid. Okay pride-filled young man <laughs> but I was driven you know just to kind of give you an idea of where I've come from you know I, I, I loved hill climbing still do nothing like a beautiful mountain you know the steeper the better um, <laughs>
0: okay.
1: I basically made a vow to myself that I would never stop on a hill no matter how hard it was no matter how tired I was I would never stop okay um you know, and I took that very seriously. I used to do this particular type of training where you, you put the bike in the hardest gear it's got and you ride up the biggest hill you can find sitting down on the bike again and again and again. You know, it's absolute agony. This one time, I think I was about seventeen at the time, I was about the sixth time up this hill, and my right calf muscle completely locked up. You know, absolute cramp. And now I had my, my feet were locked into the pedals. And in this split second I had this thing of I'm not going to be able to turn the pedal the next turn. I'm either going to fall on the ground or I have to do something drastic. But as soon as that thought kicked in, that vow came back to me. I said, I'm not going to stop. I never stop. And so I turned the pedal that next turn, ripped my calf muscle, unclipped my foot, and rode up the rest of the hill one legged. know, (laughs) 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 And then rode home just with one leg. Stupid, I know. Okay. (laughs) You can all walk away think that priest is crazy. (laughs) What's the penances that you do
0: first? (laughs) Come and talk to me afterwards.
1: (laughs) But but forevermore that is stood as a witness against me. Because I I look at what I did for the sake of a wreath that withers, as Paul says. For what I was prepared to do for vanity what I was prepared to do for pride and it vanished you know, it's nothing what are we prepared to do for, for eternity what are we prepared to do to enter into union with God you know, there comes a point where we need to work out what is our treasure what is our desire you know, for, for most people I think their treasure is themselves their own happiness, their own pleasure and we're prepared to sacrifice everything for that yeah, people are prepared to sacrifice their salvation for that. You know, for a moment's happiness. What do you want? What is your hunger? Make that decision. Yeah, choose it. And then give everything for it. You know, if you can encounter Christ, if you encounter his love, throw in everything for that, choose it, and just go for it. The turning point for my life. Got to keep an eye on the time. <laughs> I was eighteen years old, as I said. God has started to stir up my life, you know, disturbing me, you know, saying there is more. You know, you're missing something. I think it was around August, 1996. I was sitting at a geography lecture at the University of West Australia, and I was confused. You know, I had all this stuff going around in my head. I just read a biography of Francis Fassisi and was jealous because I think this guy, this guy's got a joy that I don't have. This guy has encountered a Christ that I've never met. And I was sitting there in this, in this lecture, not listening to a word of what the lecturer was saying, and I'm thinking, I need to work this out of my head. Does God exist? Yeah. Do I actually believe that God exists? Yeah. And I was convinced. I said, yes. Okay. God does exist. The next question that came to me was, Well, has, is God who he says he is? Has God actually died for me? Does he <coughs> love me? You know, is this actually real? What we say about Christianity. You know, I don't think enough people actually ask that question. We drift along and just follow. And never actually wrestle with it. I sat with that for quite some time. And I thought well well, yes. He, he did die for me. You know, God has shed every drop of his blood for me. And before I could think. The next question just came into my mind. Saying what's your response? And I thought oh. <laughs> yeah, and I think very much coming from that background of you know, sport I came to a point I said well it's all or nothing if this is real if God has given everything if he loves me that much I either walk away now and never talk to him or I give everything anything in between would be the greatest insult it would be like spitting on Christ You know, to say God I acknowledge that you have died for me and I'll give you 20%. Yeah, you know, I couldn't do it. Yeah, so, so for me, that was the turning point. That was the moment where I said, God, whatever the question is, the answer is yes, I'm yours. Dangerous thing to say. Just put that out there. You will take that seriously. <laughs> you know, it was only about a month afterwards that he then said, how about consecrated life? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, he takes your prayers seriously. voice is getting very dry so this is where we stand is this real? this is the question every Christian has to face has Christ actually died for you? what does that mean? has he risen from the dead? and what does that mean? we don't think about the resurrection nearly enough if Christ is risen from the dead this means that death is not fatal this should be the catch cry of the Christian church. Yeah, we should be shouting this out to the whole world. Death is not fatal. How does that change things if you are immortal? You ever thought of that? How does that change the decisions you make? How does that change the plans you make for your life? If you could not die, what would you do? You ever thought of that? But really, this is the point that transforms Christianity. Yeah, This is the point that transforms our life because if there are no limits if if i don't die yes my body will rot yes i will probably you know who knows how my body will will cark it, but i will live on for eternity you know how does that change my priorities yeah cuz i think for all of us there's something ticking away in the back of my head of our heads saying i'd really like to live to 80 you know and i'd really like to be comfortable and you know to be well provided for you know to have mountains of grandchildren who will all come and adore me as you know whatever You know, there's something in that of us. And it's very natural. But the the message of the resurrection changes this. And this is why we have the saints doing the maddest, craziest things. Because they were so convinced of the love of God. Because they were so convinced of eternal life. That they were able to say, my life is given. I don't have to hold back anything. My love is given. You know, I'll never run out because I've got an infinite love. I can just give and give, and whenever the Lord wants to take me, I'm His. You know an image that I I sometimes use when I talk with young people. Imagine that you haven't eaten for two weeks. Okay, you are starving. you imagine that? Okay, really hungry. (laughs) I hold up in front of you one of these big, giant, chocolate chip cookies. Okay, really nice. Now I say to you, you've got a choice you can have the cookie right now it'll satisfy your hunger you will just salivate all over this thing it would be fantastic <laughs> or you can see what's in the next room you can sacrifice the cookie go to the next room and there might be something in there might be food might be nothing food might be rotten might be horrible might be poison <laughs> who wants the cookie who wants the room Quick, quick show of hands. Who wants the cookie? I want the cookie. <laughs> Who would be prepared to sacrifice the food that's in front of them to go for the room? Three, ga- four gamblers. Okay. Be careful when it comes to Melbourne cup time around there. Okay? <laughs> Keep them chained up. <coughs> now, now really, that's the story of, of humanity. There has always been this question of is there something else? Is there eternal life? What is it? Is it good? Is it worth sacrificing anything for now? And no one's known. You know, the most natural thing is, I'll go for what's in front of me. Go for that same scenario again. I hold up in front of you the cookie. Just as I'm there, Luke comes out from the back room with chocolate cake smeared all over his face, with pasta, <laughs> pasta king out of his pockets. <laughs> And he's just saying, oh, there's so much food. and A thousand people could eat for a thousand years and not even get close to touching it. <laughs> okay, quick show of heads. Who wants the cookie now?
0: <laughs>
1: Nobody. Good. <laughs> now really, this, this is the way we need to understand the resurrection. Because Christ has risen from the dead and he's come back and he's said, guys, it's glorious. It's beyond glorious. You have no idea what you're going to be receiving here. Don't care about the cookie, <laughs> live for the room, okay? Be prepared to do everything so that everyone else gets to the room. This kind of has to, this is the fundamental point that changes the way we live. If you, if you know Christ, if you encounter his love, if you're convinced of the resurrection, how does that change the decisions you make? How does that change the way you live your vocation? Yeah, the way you dream about the future? You know, when you look at the saints, this is why they were prepared to walk away from everything. You know, even in our own time, people like Mother Teresa, being prepared to sacrifice everything that is good to try and bring goodness to others. You know, not holding back anything, but just trying to just pour out love, every ounce of love that she has, so that others can know God. You know, there are so many examples, even amongst lay people. You know, Pope John Paul II spent so much time trying to canonise lay people to show us you know, this is for everyone. People who even within marriage are prepared to pour out everything for the sake of others, <coughs> live completely assured of that knowledge of, 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 of salvation and then give without reserve. Because Christ is their everything, they're prepared to give everything. Yeah, th- this has to be the driving force of our life. I said to you before that I would read to you something of, of the early, early martyrs. So before I finish, I have to do this. This is St. Ignatius, uh, Ignatius of Antioch. This is second generation Christianity. Okay? Ignatius of Antioch was a good mate with St. Polycarp. St. Polycarp was a disciple of St. John. Okay, so this is really early church stuff. Ignatius was a bishop. He was arrested for being a bishop. And he's being taken to Rome to be fed to the lions in the Colosseum. Not a good career prospect. Now, (laughs) what's his response to this? How does he see the world? How does he see his life? He writes this letter to the church in Rome, begging them, pleading with them, saying, whatever you do, don't come and rescue me. (sighs) Because this is my chance to actually become a Christian. One of the lines he says, you know, When I stand before those lions and they're about to eat me, I'll not just be called a Christian, but I'll actually be one. Because this is my chance to give everything. All I want to do is give everything I am for Christ. And if this is my opportunity, I'm taking it. I want to be there. Now, he doesn't hold back. Where's the quote? He says, How I look forward to the lions that have been got ready for me. All I pray is that I may find them swift. I'm going to make overtures to them, so that, unlike some other wretches whom they have been too spiritless to touch, they may devour me with all speed. And if they are still reluctant, I shall use force to them. You must forgive me, but I do know what is best for myself. This is the first stage of my discipleship. And no power, visible or invisible, must grudge me my coming to Jesus Christ. Fire, cross, beast fighting, hacking and quartering, splintering of bone and mangling of limb, even the pulverising of my entire body. Let every horrid and diabolical torment come upon me, provided only that I can win my way to Jesus Christ. Now most people would say, Ignatius, you're a nutter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But <laughs> this is our heritage. And, 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 and I think, you know, I, I understand. You can have all sorts of reactions to that. And I think it's good. I think it's good that you react to that. But at some point, we've got to stop and say, well, this is our heritage as Christians. You know, this is what our church is built on. This is what those who have gone before us have done. You know, where they've been prepared to say, look, I don't want to fall in love with the world. I just want Christ. You know, and if and if my decision to follow Christ means going to this extreme, bring it on. You know, if my extreme, my desire to follow Christ means having to make whatever sacrifice, whether it's that extreme or just the daily sacrifice of having to talk to the person who you don't want to talk to, the guy in the bus who's got really bad bo, you know, I just want Christ. Yeah. I don't want to live for this world. I don't want to live for the cookie. You know, all I want is him. Yeah. Allow yourselves to be captured by his love. Allow yourselves to be so immersed in that love. And you will find joy. You will find joy beyond all telling. Allow your heart to be set aflame with that flame of his heart. We need time for questions. so we've got 10 minutes. I'll finish there. Um, anyone got questions? <laughs> Anything you were clarified? Anything you just didn't get? Well, I was just going to say, I feel like I didn't hear any of this in the, well, I didn't read it in the fine print before I had my conversion. It's like God sort of, not tricked me, but to that effect. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like (laughs) when the honeymoon period is over and it comes to crunch time, um, it's like, oh, yeah, I don't know. There's
0: not a question then. No, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. It, it, it is an interesting one. Um,
1: you know, yeah, you, you could go home and look really look at the bottom of your b- batches of certificate and it, you know, it must be really fine print because I can't find it. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting, what we actually had in the Gospel today, um, Matthew chapter 10, um, let me see if I can just find it here. Um, yeah, here we go. This is like basically the job description of the Christian. Um, it's, it's really interesting. The, the, this passage of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus just goes around, around sort of chapter, chapter 8 and chapter 9. He does like healing after healing. You know, it gets a bit boring after a while when you're reading it because it's like, okay, another nah, healing. <laughs> but basically what, basically what Jesus is trying to, what, what the author of the Gospel is trying to do here is say Jesus is Lord. He is the guy that the whole universe answers to. Okay, he raises the sick. Okay, sickness answers to him. He casts out demons. Demons answer to him. He, cures the, he raises the dead. You know, he's the Lord of life and death. He calms the storm. The whole creation answers to his name. He is the man. He then goes to the disciples. He gathers the disciples together. And he says, what I've just done, you're going to go do. Cure the sick. Raise the dead. Heal the lepers. You know, go out. In my name, in my power, and do this. Then he says, basically the job description, you know, what are the work, work conditions? I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Um, don't put your trust in other people because they'll hand you over to courts. They'll scourge you in the synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings. Um, you'll actually be killed by them. Your, your own brothers will betray you. Your parents will hate you and drive you out. Um, if you're persecuted in one city you go to the next and then they'll persecute you there <laughs> who wants to sign up? anyone, following me, come on, sign on the bottom line you can imagine the disciples sitting there looking at each other thinking uh, no one, anyone else we can follow? <laughs> it's, it, it's not an attractive proposition and, and you need to know this it's really interesting when you read the, the, in the letter of James opening line Fine for you, just so you can quote it. You know, if you're writing a letter to someone, how do you start? You start kind of nice. Um, James starts off. He says, "Greetings. Consider yourselves happy, indeed, my brothers, when you encounter trials of every sort, because you know well that the testing of their faith breeds endurance." You know, opening line. You're gonna have a really hard time. <laughs> Go to the first letter of Peter. The whole thing is it's gonna to be tough. You know, you're going to be suffering. Go to the letter, of the letter to the Hebrews. It's, you know, harden up. Come on. <laughs> you know where we're going. We're going to the cross here. You know, you, Hebrews 12 is the most amazing ending to a, to a letter. It's like this rousing challenge saying, you know, in the, in, the, in the battle against sin, you have not yet got to the point of having to shed your own blood. You know, strengthen your weak knees. You know, pick yourself up and just get back in the fight. Because you, know, you know what we're here for. You know, So often people talk about Christianity as a bit of a lifestyle choice. I'm in this because it makes me better. That's not what we're here for. You know, I'm here to make the world better. And I'm prepared to do whatever it takes to make that happen. You know, to bring life to the world. So yes, the fine print is actually in the, in the scriptures.
0: Um, get to know it well. <laughs> Any other questions? I guess mine's not really so much a question, but um, just looking at it, um, I was listening to something the other day by Father Paul Newton, who did a homily today, and um, he was just in regards to, you know, a lot of this stuff about martyr- martyrdom and that, we think of, like, you know, that was the early church, you know, getting thrown with lions and getting killed and crosses upside down and beheaded and all sorts of terrible things, but that doesn't really happen today. And, like, listening to this um, this homily that he did, and he started in Rome. He started with this Iraqi bloke um, who became a priest. And he just said, you know, I want to go back to Iraq. I'm going to take this back to um, back to Iraq. And he went there. And, you know, his, um, his church that was there was massively persecuted. Um, he would be saying mass. And there'd be gunshots into the church um, from drive-by shootings and that. He'd continue the mass and that. And eventually he got, um, he got martyred he was pulled over with some seminarians on the side of the road and taken out and shot and they'd be trapped in the car so their bodies were there rotting um, and no one could get to them because the car had blown. I think something like that that he went to that much effort to be able to bring Christ to these people and these parishioners kept coming to church knowing that they'd walk down the road and they could get killed just by going to mass and that um, I think is a really amazing witness like we feel so comfortable um, in Australia like Doing street preaching as uh, the street evangelization, I'm terrified of going up to people because I'm worried they might not like me. You know, these people are going to and like, you know, risking their lives. Yeah. And well, that's uh, what you don't worry about, that do you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, You're on wing.
1: It's it's interesting because it, it's not that far away from us, mm. um, and I and I think this is one of the things we need to realize that the the world situation is changing rapidly. Uh, that the world situation against Christianity is changing rapidly. Um, just recently, the United Nations coined the phrase "Christianophobia," uh, basically trying to put a word to the fact that, in a world which is outlawed every other prejudice, the only prejudice that's still allowed is against Christians. Um, there are now websites devoted to Christianophobia in Europe. You know, and if you if you go on there weekly, church burnings, you know, people being assaulted, people being you know sacked from their jobs because they wear a cross around their neck. Um, Any time you mention that, that you're a Christian, you your chance of promotion are gone. Uh, this is in a place like England, you know, it, it's close to us. Um, yeah, you've got a situation now where, you know, numerous people are being you know, sued or arrested because they, they speak out against homosexuality. Um, you know, in Canada, there's been numerous cases of priests or, or Protestant ministers being, being, being arrested and put in prison. Um, we're at a time where you need to stand up. Um, and basically, this is, I think, where we're really... Probably a good place to finish what we're going to talk about. You need to realise that we're in a very different era now. And and the forces that are going to work against your faith are massive. Okay? You know, we, we've come through a very comfortable era where it's simply go to church, be a good Christian, and then that's it. Okay? It doesn't work now. Uh, I think... Considering how quickly things have changed in the last five years, the next five years are going to be fascinating. I think you're going to see, even here in Australia, big drop-offs in the number of people at, at Mass. You know, personally, I think the whole gay marriage thing is going to really challenge people's faith, um, particularly if some of the, the propositions to Parliament about um, anti-discrimination laws and human rights laws has the potential to, to you know, shut down Catholic schools. You know, if, if, if all these laws get passed it then becomes illegal for us to actually speak about what we believe you know, it could happen really quickly you know, we've, got to, we've got to pray and we've got to fight that it doesn't um, but this is really where you're going to work out where do you stand you know, how far away are we from something like what Ignatius of Antioch experienced you know, you know, where it, it could be a decision between your job and your security for your family or your faith you know, it could be a decision between relationship with your family, you know, your extended family, and what you believe. Um, it, it, it hits home really quickly. And I think this is where holiness is not just a lifestyle choice. Once again, you know, it, it's not a choice. We're at a point now in history where it's a necessity. You know, if you want to survive, you've got to make some serious decisions. Um, yeah, and, and, and the world needs this. Um, I've got to finish but I'd love to rant on for a whole lot longer um, it, it's really interesting. That, that Pope Benedict to just to finish on this, uh, Pope Benedict gave a talk back in 96 uh, where he spoke about the whole push of relativism and the crisis of relativism to the faith and to Europe and the whole world and he presented this really dark picture where you basically think well what's the hope you know, how could we ever fight against this but the way he finished, he said, what's the answer to this? He basically said, we need saints. We need people who are prepared to rise up and live radical Christianity. Not the Christianity that they, they were brought up with, not with the stuff that's been witnessed to them, but carve a new path. You know, people who are able to have their, their love speak to the need of the world, whose intellect is able to speak to the intellect of the world. People who are able to just get out there and, and bring Christ and make him real you know be real witnesses that i believe the resurrection so much that i don't care if that means i get fed to the lions <coughs> that was the whole point of the martyrs that they became a witness to the resurrection and very much it will be our sacrifices that witness to that you know it's easy to say i believe that christ is risen but to be able to say i believe it so much that i'm prepared to do this yeah you need to ask yourselves the questions and I think that's the point we finish on. Wrestle with the questions. Wrestle with your faith. Pull it apart. Is it real? And if it is real, what's your response?
0: Radio.org.au